25 past the hour as we continue here on Sports Talk. You know, we've had Jeff Reuter on the show uh, a lot to talk USL and and, and talk some uh, locomotive uh, soccer, which we'll do near the end of this conversation. But today I wanted to bring Jeff on to talk about the biggest story in the football world, and that is Leo Messi and what could be the messiest divorce we've seen in recent memory involving one of the great players uh, in the history of his sport. And uh, Jeff joins us uh, live on the phone lines right now as we continue on the program. Good to have you back, Jeff. And, uh, man, this this is definitely a story that I, I guess the deeper you get into it, the uglier it is, whether it's the relationship that's deteriorated over the years, the clause that's going to be disputed because of COVID, and the fact that there is an enormous, enormous fee that if a, a team tries to go after him um, would have to pay if uh, he's not able to get a, a free transfer out of Barcelona. Yeah, and I, I think, too, just for people who are tuning in and maybe, you know, Locomotive might be the extent of their understanding or, you know, following, uh, and no shame in that, by the way, I always support your local club first and everyone else second. Um, <laughs> this isn't the biggest story in soccer today. This is the biggest story in sports today. This is bigger than anything the MLB is going to throw at you. This is bigger than any NFL storyline, any player who might resign. This is bigger than the NBA playoffs. This is quite possibly the best athlete in the world over the last 15 years, suddenly saying that he wants to move to a new team for the first time in his career since he was, you know, 10 years old and he headed over to Barcelona as a kid. Um, it's massive. The, the, the ramifications of this, go beyond just, you know, his bank account. It goes beyond uh, where is he trying to win a Champions League next year in Europe. Um, you know, it, it's, this is probably rock bottom for FC Barcelona in their storied history since, uh, since they probably lost, uh, I don't know, since they lost Luis Figo to Real Madrid, honestly. And that, that brings me back to about 2003. Uh, and before that, you're looking at when Johan Cruyff left and when this team was kind of in shambles in the mid-tiers of La Liga. This is not a club that is used to failure. This is not a club that's used to losing these sorts of things on the field or off. This is the biggest loss in their history. And today they lost the Champions League semifinal to Wolfsburg in the Women's Champions League, too. So not a good day to be Barcelona, uh, but a really good day if you like, I don't know, photoshops of players in other jerseys, if you like uh, puns about a player's name, if you like just rampant speculation from across the world. It's a very good day to be on Twitter, which is not something you can say very often anymore. You know what else I liked? So I was expecting when I was reading this story, because you, you follow so much in American sports, you're expecting Messi to make his uh, decision to leave Barcelona either on social media, Instagram, Twitter, an email to the club. No. He sent it via fax, and I looked at that, and I did a double take, and I saw the article and had to make sure I was reading it right, but number one, they are still using fax machines in Europe, and in this particular situation, that's how he communicated to the club he wanted out. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's, uh, it, it's prime for jokes, but I think that there's no better way for Messi to make this announcement than over fax, just because he's... He's a pretty, I don't know, he's a bespoke player. He is not a guy who is very active on social media. I follow him uh, because I work in soccer uh, on Instagram. And he just posts pictures of him kicking a ball over his giant dogs. He'll post pictures of his family on vacation. But he's not going to really be out there posting, like, you know, like, 
LM7 or LM10 or whatever like Ronaldo would do. We're not really just kind of going for look at me partying with Drake like Neymar might do. That is not his style at all. Um, so the fact that it's a fax, I mean, like, it, it's just, in a way, it's almost the weirdest part of this whole thing because I didn't realize anyone had a fax machine anymore in the world. Um, uh, but in, it, the more you think about it, the more it truly is fitting to a player who is strictly business with his brand, who is strictly about on-field performance, wants a private life off the field, um, and isn't going to be worried about the presentation of this. He's not going to be booking ESPN FC to try to do the decision to nothing like that. Um, he just wants to be able to keep it to football. Jeff Ruder uh, is uh, talking uh, messy with us uh, here on Sports Talk as we continue. Now, how rare is it in when, when you look at you know European football stars and superstars for that matter? Because you mentioned Ronaldo. I think uh, it's safe to say that you could look at Messi and Ronaldo and give it the, the, you know, the, the magic bird reference in the sport because they're the two by far you know, giants uh, during so much of their careers. They've played against each other as rivals. It's been terrific. But how, how rare is it to have a player spend his entire career with one team? Yeah, you know, the, the whole – there used to be kind of a, a true adage where um, the, the most honorable thing that a player can do in their career – you know, because most leagues will have player of the year, but it's not the same sort of fanfare as like the NFL MVP or, uh, you know, an NBA Finals MVP. It's not really the same equivalent, not given the same sort of a scheme. It's more just like a nod of who played the best. Um, the, the biggest honor a player could have if it wasn't going to be a champion was going to be a one-club man. And it was the idea that, like, you would never picture Paul Scholes in any other shirt besides Manchester United. You would never dare to see Francesco Totti sign up for anybody but Roma. You were never going to, you know, dare think that it could be possible for Jean-Luigi Buffon to finish his career anywhere but Juventus. And then, of course, he pledged for PSG for a year. And I think that if you're looking at when that shifted, um, a lot of players aren't staying with the club that they trained at in the academy days past 25 and so it's hard to find that player who went through the academy i mean even if you're looking at some of the great leaders and i'm sorry my greyhound just found a squeaky toy um but if you're um <laughs> uh, if you're looking at some of the great leaders um on teams in the world right now james miller and jordan henderson did not go through the liverpool academy um i mean you're looking at uh there's so few examples right now you've got sergio busquets um over at uh barcelona you've got uh, Joshua Kimmich, who's still young but looks like he's going to follow in the footsteps of his predecessor and mentor, um, Philip Lahm, over in Bayern Munich. Um, they're few and far between, and I think a part of it is the transfer market is so skewed to favor young players, to favor wanting to poach a player who's 24 and already starting to enter his prime, rather than looking at the 20-year-old that you have coming through the ranks ready to break through to the first team but might need two more years of seasoning because you can't wait that long because you're worried that your Champions League window would close. Uh, once that transfer market got skewed to such a degree where now, I mean, the transfer fees you see were ludicrous right before COVID. Once that happened, the one-club man kind of myth really did become just that, a myth. More with Jeff Reuter from The Athletic as we continue here on Sports Talk. But first, let's go to Adrian. He's got this bottom of the hour Sports Center update. Thank you very much, Adrian, for the update. Uh, follow Jeff on Twitter, at Jeff Reuter on Twitter. That's at Jeff Reuter on Twitter. Check out his work uh, for The Athletic um, as we continue. Now, I know the contract that Messi has with Barcelona expires next June, but he had this situation 
that if he wanted to break his contract, he was able to do it before June 10th. But then the season gets prolonged because of COVID. And Barcelona finally finishes their season 11 days ago. And he decides, all right, he'll exercise the contract, uh, the clause, because the season's over, so everything would extend. How messy do you think this will get? And could it even go into the courts if Messi is claiming he, out of good faith, did not try to do this before the deadline because of COVID and rather was just waiting until the season's out, whereas Barcelona's going to claim, hey, you missed your deadline two and a half months ago? Yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's a certain amount of this where, um, you know, when, whenever there's a player of a caliber of Messi, whenever there's a dispute involved, I mean, you saw this happen um, or potentially happen when Neymar was scoping out a way, a mechanism to get back to Barcelona to, you know, play with Messi again. Um, it's always going to go to court. I mean, this is, you can, you can argue that heritage is the biggest pull for Barcelona. You can argue that it's playing style. You can argue that. Um, you know, history, all of these certain things that you can say um, are big pull factors. The biggest pull factor that they have, the biggest, uh, I mean, advertising export that they have is Lionel Messi. That is the single biggest part of currency across the world that they have. And so if this guy is going to be able to walk for free and you're losing your biggest asset for free, that is an absolute disaster. Um, if you're in the position of FC Barcelona. So, yes, I think that inevitably whatever happens, if he does end up leaving without a transfer fee um, in nine figures, this will end up going to court. Um, the, the real question then just does become, does that uh, you know, prohibit him from playing anywhere else until it is solved? And if it does, um, does that you know, damage that relationship that he might still have um, with the club beyond repair? Well, if he sits out till next June and then just decides to go someplace after that, you would think that that'd be even more damaging. But you talked about how you know why Barcelona's a disaster right now. It seems like a total disaster. It seems like an like they need a full rebuild, and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's any way to fix this relationship right now. Yeah, it, it would have to be. I mean, just letting him choose who the new head coach would be, and even that probably wouldn't be enough for him. Um, it. it I mean, what it would really come down to is it's getting rid of um, the, the, the president that they have right now who has kind of overseen this unprecedented fall from grace that the club has gone through at this point. Um, it would mean giving him more power than any player has had in the history of football since probably, again, Johan Cruyff right towards the end of his career. Um, do I see that happening? Uh, you know, Anything's possible with a player like this. There is no player who has been more important to their club over the last 15 years than Messi. Um, and, and, and I would argue that uh, there has been, I mean, I mean, there hasn't been a player um, more important at any uh, you know, juncture than Messi is to Barcelona right now in terms of their identity and their present and their future. Um, so it would just be that leap of faith that, yes, we're going to give him whatever he wants. Please, please stay. And keep in mind, it's not, completely out of the picture that he will stay with Barcelona. There is absolutely a chance that they're going to be able to bend over backwards, appoint the president that he wants, hire the head coach that he wants, and he stays. Will it be ugly? Yes. Will it tarnish his reputation? Not at all. Um, Not at all at this point, because when you have a player of his caliber, you do whatever it takes to keep him around. 
where could he go? We hear Man City all over the place. Also, Inter Milan has been mentioned a lot. Other clubs have as well all over Europe and all over the other leagues. I mean, if you had to handicap it, do you think uh, Man City would be the number one spot? Man City is, uh, if not number one, they're in the top three. I think at this point, if, you, if you're scoping it out, the club will say it's not going to happen because they have to try to keep um, financial fair play rules uh, at bay because they've already just barely dodged a penalty that would have seen them ineligible to play in the Champions League this coming year. Um, you, you would also have to look at a club like Juventus, uh, who has Cristiano Ronaldo and certainly does have that ambition. The question is, why would he want to play for a new head coach with no experience like Andrea Pirlo, regardless of his name? Uh, you're also looking at Inter Milan within the same Serie A, um, who are really determined to get back to kind of a global power status. They, um, I mean, played so well in the Champions League final, despite, or in the Europa League final, excuse me, uh, last week, despite losing to um, uh, Sevilla uh, in La Liga. You're, you're looking at a, a team, though, that has a lot of pieces that he will like. They have Romelu Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez, his countrymen at forward. You have Antonio Conte, one of the most respected uh, managers in the world right now. You have a heck of a budget and no worry right now about financial fair play. Um, all of those things really do bode well, and it looks like it will likely be one of those three. I, you won't see him in MLS this soon. It's early. It's too early for him to make that sort of a financial sacrifice, which ultimately he would have to take given MLS's wage abilities. Um, but I, honestly, right now, it does look like it would either be England or Italy who are uh, the, the most likely competitions he would play in next season. This tweet just came in from um, Augustine, one of our listeners. He tweets, the messy thing at this point of his career is a non-issue. He isn't worth a lot because of his age, and he is on the downturn of his career. He's not Cristiano. He won't be elite anymore. He's history <laughs> and was great. But okay. uh, now, he, do you agree or disagree with that? I completely disagree with all of that. Um, because Ronaldo is a player who, at this point of his career, as he is losing his... And I understand... I, well, I don't understand why, but I do understand that there is a sort of you either like Ronaldo and hate Messi or you like Messi and hate Ronaldo, which I think is ridiculous. They're the two best players of their generation. You can appreciate both of them without negating and taking away from the level of the other one. Messi, though, in, in, at this point, neither of them are as athletic as they used to be, but athleticism was such a major part of Ronaldo's game that now you do need to tailor a team more to him. You need to find a player who is going to be able to make up for the lack of defense that he's going to be playing and the tracking back that he used to do in his career that he doesn't do anymore. He's not really a facilitator. He'll get some assists within the box, but he isn't going to be the player who's going to take the ball from 50 yards out, you know, scan the field, and try to make his moves up the field to set up Dybala or set up some of his other teammates. Messi can still do some of that, and frankly, he does a lot of that still. Um, so he's, he's two years younger than Ronaldo, so he also is going to just have naturally more longevity. He has fewer miles on his legs at this point. Um, so uh, respectfully, I will say that he is actually worth quite a bit more money on the global transfer market than Ronaldo is at this point in their respective careers. He also had more assists uh, for La Liga this year than he's had the last six, seven years anyway, and he still scores goals. It's almost like he's becoming more of a playmaker now. Yeah, I, I think that is a part of it, too, where, I mean, you, you look and you could probably say, if, if, if I remember right, I think LeBron James has had more triple-doubles uh, with the Lakers than he was having with, I mean, some of his years with the Heat, which were arguably his best years of his career, right? So, so there's also the argument where a player who is that good but also recognizes that, you know, they need their teammates to be able to carry them more will go out of their ways 
to boost the confidence of their teammates that they make those moments. I mean, if you watch The Last Dance, you saw it all the time with Michael Jordan, with guys like Scotty Burrell, and, and just putting him through the ringer in practice so that he would not flinch during a Game 6 in an NBA Finals. And you're looking at Steve Kerr getting that corner shot in 97. Um, this is something that happens the world over, so the fact that Messi is taking on more of that in his game is just as much to do with trying to bring out the best in Barcelona in a season where they looked flawed but not bad um, as it is anything to do with him changing his game. Let me wrap it up with you for a little USL uh, question because we saw what happened with Locomotive uh, FC this past weekend, a scoreless draw against Colorado Springs. New Mexico still leads right now. Group C, the Locomotive are second. They've distanced themselves from Colorado Springs and uh, also uh, Real uh, Monarchs, uh, Salt Lake City, but Phoenix has been so good. And, you know, we've talked about this with you in the past uh, when the Locomotive had a chance to play them earlier this season. But, you know, you look at uh, really what they've been about and, and ultimately Solomon Asante and how dominant he continues to be. Uh, are they just head and shoulders better than everybody right now in the West? Well, you're also seeing this weird, beautiful, in-team, on-the-field-only fight between Solomon Asante and Junior Fleming, because I think this is the year where Flemo has looked and said, like, why am I not getting this same sort of recognition? I'm younger, I'm quicker, I'm more versatile. Uh, yes, I'm more unproven than Solomon Asante is at that level, but you're seeing him really kind of grab games by the neck even a little bit more uh, in that sort of search to be that next respected player. Um, are they unstoppable? I mean, they looked better last season, and they still lost in the postseason before getting to a conference final. Um, all it takes really is, you know, it sounds oversimplistic and it sounds like the kind of thing that you would just hear like a, a tired baseball manager say after the middle of an eight game home stretch, but, um, you have to catch them on the wrong day for them. You just have to catch them where, you know, Asante is not a big game player. We found that out abundantly clear last year when he pulled himself before a likely penalty kick shootout because he had missed a penalty earlier in the game. So you have to keep a game close and Asante gets nervous as that caught kicks and Phoenix is still tied or losing. You're looking at finding ways to, like I said last time I was on, you're neutralizing passing channels. You're stopping the midfield from being able to pass over you or through you to get to Asante and Fleming, and you're making them try to run through you, and physically you try to stop them. That's where you need the veterans like Yuma and Ryan to really step up and kind of wind back the clock just a little bit to be able to keep them at check. Um, you need to test the defense more than they've been tested. I mean, like, Las Vegas Lights put three goals against them on the weekend. Las Vegas Lights is not a good team this year. They're a team that's on their second head coach, and they're a team that's not close to the playoffs. They're fallible. Don't get me wrong. Honestly, what you need to do is you need to approach them like any other team. And again, sounds cliche. Sounds too easy. But most often, you will see teams that go in and they say, oh, my gosh, it's, it's Phoenix Rising. We can't possibly. We just have to try to keep it close. They stop doing what they do best, and they just try to contain a game. And because containing game isn't what those teams do best they blow it and they blow up and then there's no coming back and you're already down three goals 20 minutes in if you approach them you respect them but you treat them like every other opponent as you game plan you have a far better chance of knocking them off than if you approach them as if they're the best team in usl history follow jeff on twitter at jeff Ruder on twitter you'll get beauties like this that he tweeted out three hours ago i bet Messi would like bus rides from tulsa to el paso so that is part of the quality of, uh, of Jeff's tweets. And uh, check out his work. He's terrific at theathletic.com. Always enjoy the conversation. Looking forward to the next time we get a chance to chat, Jeff. Sounds good, man. Keep up the good work.
You as well. We'll come back with more. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues right after ABC 7 News and Charlie 1 and 600 ESPN El Paso. Start of hour number two here on Sports Talk as we continue. Steve Kaplowitz with you, along with Adrian Broaddus. So excited about going to our phone lines right now and welcoming in author Jim Hawk, who's had a brand new book out called Father on the Line. Talking about his dad and those great teams from the 1950s and the uh, L.A. Rams. Jim, first off, I appreciate the time and, and thanks for joining us on the show today. Uh, Steve, it's awesome to be here, and it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. It sounds like growing up in a family where um, you were a part of, uh, what, seven total kids, brothers and sisters, and your dad, an offensive lineman for the Rams in the 50s. Um, I can't even imagine what it was like living that life because L.A. had just uh, started to really get into the sports world in a big way professionally with the Rams and then later on the Dodgers, the Giants, the Lakers, of course. Um, 50s and 60s in L.A. just had to be an unbelievable time to experience sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, L.A. was exploding, to your point, in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, I wrote this story uh, about my dad and his team, the Rams of the fifties, but it was it was a personal uh, thing for me. After you know, dealing after my dad had passed away of cancer in the year two thousand, and we of course were a big Irish Catholic family, as you said. I'm the youngest of seven kids, and we're sitting there in a uh, Orange County uh, church park- parking lot doing a celebration of life, as we do as we're you know a big Irish family. Of course, there was some beer drinking. And my brother hits me in the shoulder and says, "Hey, man, I can't write. You can, but these stories are great. That my dad's, all my dad's teammates who had come to the funeral were were telling stories about what it was like to play then. But really, L.A. too in the 1950s was just a place where people were were moving from all over the country for better opportunities after World War II. So I also tried to make Los Angeles almost a character in the book. Uh, my dad and mom would tell stories, and they grew up right around the old Los Angeles Coliseum where the Rams had played up until this year, until they moved into their new stadium uh, in a few weeks. But uh, it was a place that you didn't even recognize from month to month sometimes just because there was so much construction and building and freeways going up and people moving from, you know, El Paso, Texas and Oklahoma and other places uh, throughout the country to uh, to you know, work in these a lot of these companies that were propping up in the post-World War II L.A. Was your dad a big storyteller? Would uh, would you uh, really try and and get all these great ones from him that he would share and kind of you know tell you what uh, what it was like to be in battles playing in the fifties in the NFL and and what that was like? He was a great storyteller. He was actually a really humble guy. However, he was a you know your classic classic offensive lineman, right? The quiet, you know, humble guys that kind of do the the grunt work. And you know, another theme of the book is you know people like my dad who weren't you know big big stars, but it takes, you know, the workhorses, you know, in any industry, whether that's a radio station or a city or a football team, it takes the the people on the line to make things go on both the offensive and defensive line. So he was a good storyteller. He was a quiet guy, though, so, but he would like to share stories. He loved to laugh, and he loved to, to have his friends, a lot of his former teammates who were, you know, many of whom were, were all pro- all pro and NFL Hall of Famers, that type of thing, uh, you know, over to the house. And, and we would travel to see a lot of games because a lot of them were coaches. And so I just kind of picked them up, not only from my dad and my mom and from his his teammates. And that's who I, I interviewed a lot after my dad passed. Um, I just went back and started calling some of his teammates and others, like Frank Gifford and Art Donovan and others, you know, throughout the league, 
uh, who played and, and knew my dad and, and shared stories about what it was like to play back then, which was just, it wasn't what it was today. Jim, this is your second book on those those Rams teams from the fifties, and I wonder is this is this effort more of a of a personal uh, anecdote and just talking about the relationship uh, you, you had with your dad over the years? Yeah, it, it definitely is a great question. It's definitely an updated version. Uh, it is a more personal version of um, the original books called Hollywood's Team, and it's it's a it's trying to capture more of the kind of father son aspect of, you know, we all have those relationships and, and trying to share those stories. But uh, also you had mentioned earlier, you know, not only the Rams in the 1950s, but the Dodgers had moved from Brooklyn in the 1950s to Los Angeles. The Rams were the first, uh, you know, team West of the Mississippi, uh, but also the first modern team to integrate. They did it a year before Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers. So I tried to, you know, tell those stories in the book and and let those come to life because, as a kid, I had heard all these stories, and I wanted to share those with others. And obviously, also, you know, kind of in both books, kind of honor my dad and my mom and their lives, uh, you know, together in a city they loved passionately. I'm also assuming that since you mentioned you're the youngest of seven, uh, you probably never had the opportunity to really uh, you know, see or remember much of of watching your dad play for the Rams. Yeah, I never uh, physically. That's right. I never physically saw him in person. I saw him on films and and NFL films and that type of thing. Um, we had a lot of game film from, from various, uh, uh, you know, from my dad's perspective and also his, his teammates, uh, Sid Gilman, they're all, all pro uh, NFL coach, uh, NFL Hall of Famer, who is the architect of the modern passing game, is known as. Uh, he was, one of his innovations was game film. So there was a lot of game film of the Rams in the 50s, and, you know, breaking down game film was kind of Sid Gilman's kind of art. So, uh, yeah, I got to watch him on, on film. And, and uh, you know, in college, my dad went to University of Santa Clara, which no longer has football. It's in Northern California. But he would tell stories how even in, from graduating in 1950 in Santa Clara and the uniforms had, had changed where he had a leather helmet in college and a, and a, and a regular helmet uh, in, in, in pro football. But it was just a t- completely different time. And it, 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 it just would blow you away. And I, I tried to share the, some of those stories in the book. Uh, you know, things like my dad making basically the same amount of money. He was a well, one-time pro bowler, but my mom was a third-grade teacher, and they, they essentially made the same amount in annual salary, which is just unheard of today, even though our teachers need to be paid more. Uh, you can't even imagine an NFL player being paid on par with a, with a third-grade public school teacher. I can't. No, you, you can't. And that's the funny thing is that, uh, you know, you hear the stories about how many of these guys work jobs in the offseason, were living in the community, and were just regular people. Yeah, they played They played a game that, you know, most people would probably have, have played for free, but money was so different back then. They had to all have uh, part-time jobs during the offseason. Yeah, absolutely. My dad was a, was a part-time teacher as well. Some of his teammates, uh, Andy Robstelli, you know, worked in his Parents' sporting goods store, Frank Gifford, uh, who I talked to for the book, uh, you know, the announcer for Monday Night Football, everyone knows, Hall of Famer. He was a, started acting. Uh, a few of the Rams started acting and kind of that embracing of Hollywood, which was part of it. Um, but it was a different, as you said, it was a different time. And, and another story I share is when my dad did make the Pro Bowl, he was paid $500 as the, you know, the each player was awarded. And with that $500, he had promised my mom a new furniture set. So, you know, she had passed away this past year, and to you know, the time of her death, she would call that the Pro Bowl set. But 
you know, there, there were there were innovations born in the '50s that we still live with today and, and influence the game today. Uh, a guy by the name of Pete Rozelle, who was the Rams' general manager and public relations man, uh, went on to become the NFL commissioner, as everyone knows, in 1960 at the ripe old age of 33. He was known as the boy commissioner. But he was just really innovative and just a fantastic marketer. He's the one who had the Rams were the first team with a local television contract. So what did Pete Rozelle do in the 1960s? Uh, he established you know national television contracts, which put the NFL, as we know today, as the premier sport uh, in, in the country, in the world, if you will. Um, but that was Pete Rozelle. And, and so a lot of those innovations or, or testing or you know, creativity was going on in the 1950s in L.A. Uh, in this you know, fantastically uh, exciting team with glitz and glamour and, and breaking all kinds of passing records was the L.A. Rams in the 50s. The memoir from Jim Hawk is called Father on the Line, and he joins us uh, here on uh, Sports Talk as we continue. So as a rookie, he plays the 1950 season for the Chicago Cardinals, but like so many great athletes uh, during the, you know, every time from really the, the teens all the way up through the 50s and 60s, your dad lost a couple of years uh, to, to serving uh, in the war and, and fought in Korea. He did. He was drafted into the Army, which was very common back then. It was just a few short years after World War II, so the draft was still instituted, um, all the way up through Vietnam, as we know. And he went to Korea for a couple of years, and he played in a USO football league, so a lot of the players uh, to entertain the troops uh, would travel around from Japan to Korea and other places in Asia. And he, he loved it a lot, of, met a lot of uh, uh, teammates uh, that uh, he played with in Korea went on to play for other teams in the NFL. And you had mentioned the Cardinals. Uh, my dad was coached his first coach in the NFL, which I share a story in the book, was Curly Lambeau, famous mm. coach of, of Green Bay Packer lore and Lambeau Field. Curly Lambeau had left the Packers and was an older man, and he was given a part ownership of the Chicago Cardinals franchise, which was the second franchise in Chicago, as we all know, with the Bears being the preeminent um, uh, franchise before the Cardinals moved to St. Louis. But back in those days, uh, the coaches liked to kind of, you know, touch cardboard, as they say, and, and at UPS, the company, the package delivery company. Uh, he went to my dad's dorm room in Santa Clara after they had, had beaten Bear Bryant's Kentucky team in the Orange Bowl in 1950, kind of shocked the, the country, if you will, the small Santa Clara team. And Curly Lambeau comes in and sits in my, on my dad's bed, which was a uh, all-boys Catholic university, Santa Clara University, and the entire time, my dad was not thinking that this legend was on his bed, but this person who was smoking a long extender cigarette and the ashes were falling on the bed, and my dad was worried about what the priest would say when they you know, smelled ashes or came in the room and saw it on his bed. So we laughed about that growing up. That uh, My brothers and I couldn't believe that there was an NFL legend sitting on our dad's college room dorm bed, and, and that's what he thought about rather than you know, his future NFL career. You know, I love the stories. I really do. Because um, I, obviously his best year with those Rams teams was 55 when they went all the way to the championship and lost to the Cleveland Browns. That was before Jim Brown, but still Otto Graham was on that team. A lot of good players for Cleveland. They finished first that year in the NFL West in 1955. They had some dominant years prior to your dad joining the club. But you mentioned Sid Gilman. That was his first season. And it really, uh, if you look back at those Rams teams, it really was a, a who's who of Hall of Famers. It really was. I mean, people, you mentioned Sid Gilman, but, you know, people like Elroy Crazy Lake Hurst, their wide receiver, Tom Fears, another wide receiver, Norm Van Brocklin, 
NFL Hall of Famer, uh, Bob Waterfield, who another Hall of Famer who quarterback who was married to an actress named Jane Russell. So they were kind of the Hollywood it couple at the time. Um, but just a uh, Deacon Dan Towler, just uh, Night Train Lane, just some some unbelievably great big personalities. And that's what you had to do in Los Angeles in the 1950s. Frankly, you have to do it today is to capture the imagination of the town. You got to be exciting. You got to be kind of glamorous and and embrace Hollywood. And and that's when the the Hollywood started embracing the Rams and vice versa. Uh, Bob Hope, the famous comedian, was one of the minority owners of the team at the time. Walt Disney's son-in-law played for the team. Uh, his name was Ron Miller. He went on to work for the Disney Corporation. Uh, but Walt Disney was on the you know sidelines or in the stands pretty much every Sunday. Uh, watching the Rams or watching his son-in-law, and, and the Disneys were part of the fabric of the team of the 1950s. And I also tell a story just in the backdrop of that because of that close relationship between the Disneys and, and the Rams. Uh, you know, Ram players and their families got free tickets to Disneyland because Disneyland opened in 1955, and believe it or not, Steve, it was built in 11 months. So I tell the story of how the building of Disneyland and how the Rams kind of co-marketed themselves with Disneyland around that time. Unreal. Uh, Jim Hawk with us right now. The name of the book, Father on the Line. Did your dad, prior to his passing, uh, have a lot of reunions with his former teammates, especially in the, the 80s and 90s when they became more and more popular around the, the sports world and the sports memorabilia world? He did. He would go. He went to a few Super Bowls. He, um, you know, but my dad being a quiet guy, he, the, the thing he most enjoyed was just, you know, going to see one of his friends, whether it was Andy Robustelli or Dwayne Putnam was his closest friend, another uh, offensive guard who was a longtime coach for the Philadelphia Eagles with Dick Vermeil and the Jets and others. And and oftentimes we would, uh, you know, whether it was in Los Angeles or in the New York area where my dad's uh, later career had, had moved us to when I was a, a, a kid, uh, we would, you know, whether they were playing the Giants or the Jets or the Eagles or, you know, we'd go to Boston or Washington or wherever, we would we would travel to see his buddies and we would, you know, catch up in the locker room after the game and then go to dinner after. He just, he loved that, that one-on-one kind of reconnection with his buddies. But they stayed uh, in close touch throughout the years. You know, I really love, in, in the book, I think it's so nice that you had the opportunity to also chronicle uh, what Los Angeles City Councilwoman um, uh, Roz Wyman had a chance to do in order to try to lure Walter O'Malley to Los Angeles. You kind of take you back to that time and, and include uh, part of the, uh, you know, the, the recruiting process, which eventually led to the Brooklyn Dodgers becoming the L.A. Dodgers. Absolutely. So Roz Wyman is just a force of nature. She's uh, a, a personal friend. Uh, I worked for Senator Feinstein from California at one point, and, and Roz and Diane are very close. And Roz just became a mentor of mine, a friend. And she just offhanded when I was in my early 20s telling the story about how she helped bring the Dodgers to the, the city of Los Angeles in the 50s. And I just, you know, she was a very <laughs> humble person, but she was a young city councilwoman. And she convinced the mayor that, you know, to put Los Angeles on the map, they needed a, a baseball team. Because um, at that time, Steve, to, to take you back in that time, uh, the NFL in Sports Illustrated, for example, the weekly, obviously, national sports publication, had about one page or maybe two pages if, of coverage, whereas Major League Baseball sometimes had 10, 12, 14 pages. College football had, you know, eight, nine pages. So it just shows you baseball was the, the premier sport in the country at the time. So to have a baseball team move to L.A. in the 50s, you know, I wanted to tell that story. Roz gave us a lot, gave me a lot of time in telling the backstory of it and how she was able to convince Walter O'Malley, among others, 
to bring this, you know, fabled franchise from Brooklyn, where it was, you know, iconic, named after the Dodgers dodging subway cars to Los Angeles. And now, obviously, the Dodgers are part of the fabric of the city of L.A. You mentioned earlier, Jim, writing this for your kids so they can get an idea to know what their grandfather was like. As far as people uh, that are listening to the radio show right now getting a chance to read Father on the Line, what do you think the one thing that they'll end up taking away from the new book? Well, I think it's everybody has parents that they love and, you know, loved ones, uncles, aunts, etc. What I try to do is, and, and do just that, is, is I wrote this book after my dad had passed away and dealing with the loss of a parent, as we all will do, um, you know, at some point in our lives. And my, my oldest son, who's 18 now, is named John, and he's named after my dad. And, and it was, it was, I started the book after he was born and just kind of reconciling what it was like to be a father in my own right and, you know, dealing with the love of, you know, a, a dad who I, I just lost a couple of years prior. So I think what people take away from this is there's some interesting stories, but it's also kind of, you know, the, the importance of family and connection and, uh, um, you know, sports and, and, and faith all wrapped up together in a, in, a, in a book. I love it. Folks, if you search Father on the Line on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you'll get a chance to pick up a copy of it. You can get it in a couple of days and really enjoy uh, Jim Hawk's latest efforts and a tribute to his father, uh, John. It's Father on the Line. Terrific stuff. Appreciate the time, and uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us here in El Paso today, Jim. Steve, it was a great honor. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll come back with plenty more. Phone calls next right after Charlie One, who's got this traffic update for us 20 past the hour. It's the start of hour number three here on Sports Talk. Welcome back, everybody. Steve Kaplowitz with you as we uh, jump out to the phone lines right now and uh, say hello to Rob Domofsky, who covers the Green Bay Packers for uh, ESPN.com. And we've had an opportunity to have Rob on before, but excited now to get a training camp look from Green Bay. Rob, welcome back. Uh, first off, how have you been holding up and uh, how are things uh, in this uh, you know, bizarre 2020? Yeah, Steve, it's good to be with you guys and, and good to, to talk to everybody out in El Paso again. Uh, it's, um, you know, the first day of training camp, um, I think it was August 15th was the first practice. That was the first time I worked outside of my house since the combine, which was the end of February. So uh, it's just good to be outside and good to be uh, working around people who are involved in football again, even if it's um, watching practice and then racing up to our my media work area at Lambeau and logging onto my computer to talk to Matt LaFleur and selected players after practice. So uh, it's better than nothing, but it is definitely different. They, they had a practice, Steve, inside Lambeau Field. Um, they actually had two of them, but they had um, the, the second one uh, today on, on Tuesday, and it was really weird. Devontae Adams caught a touchdown pass and threw the ball up into the stands like he did uh, a couple of years ago when he caught the game winner against Dallas. Uh, and, and I said, I said, thought to myself, I go, all right, so there's no fans in the stands now. There's not going to be fans in the stands the first two home games. If Devontae or anybody else celebrates by throwing a ball up into the stands, will he be fined like he usually would be under normal NFL rules and circumstances? It was just one of those moments that just reminded you that, yes, football is back, but it's not quite back to normal. I hear you. And plus, what it also does is it's making additional work for the staff to have to go find, <laughs> track down that football and bring it back. It was funny that you say that because one, there was an equipment guy who I did see run up the stairway right behind the goalposts 
uh, and t- track down the ball. You know, the, normally that's where the net would be for field goals, right? Uh, but they didn't they didn't raise the net uh, because they didn't have to worry about the ball, you know, going in there. So that's funny that you mentioned that because that caught my eye as well. Now, I've been looking at the pictures that you've been tweeting out um, at practice, and it looks like your vantage point is somewhere seated in Lambeau, probably what, about uh, 10 rows up? Yep. Yeah, that's what it's been like for the Lambeau practices. On the, the regular practices, Steve, on, on the Ray Nitschke practice field, we're, we're uh, I say we, it's a select number of, of media in what they call Tier 2. Uh, we are allowed on the sidelines. Um, we do wear these monitors that buzz if we get within six feet of someone. Uh, but we're part of the group that is tested daily for COVID. Uh, every morning at Lambeau, just like the players, um, there's a handful of us in that Tier 2 media. We're tested, which allows us to be on the sideline and allows us to work, like I said, from our Lambeau offices, uh, which is actually where I am right now in, in, in the ESPN.com office in the media work area at Lambeau Field, which is actually – just down the hall from the visitors' locker room, but uh, that that allows me a little bit more access, although it's not much than what they call the tier three media, which are a lot of the local TV people, radio that are that are much more distant from the practice field and not allowed in the facility. Now, Rob, the big question is this: If you're being tested daily, are you going through the nasal swab test or the uh, saliva test? It is the nasal swab test, but I will tell you, it is not as invasive as um, I was fearful of. So um, it, it is minimally invasive. Uh, I assume that that makes it still accurate. Um, but, uh, but yes, it is not the stab your brain test. Maybe they're just being kind to you. <laughs> or maybe they don't want to find out any positive tests in the NFL. No, I'm just kidding. I can't say <laughs> Now, we all know, uh, you know Aaron Jones has spent the entire uh, spring and summer yep. here in El Paso, working out, preparing himself. And obviously with the draft of uh, A.J. Dillon, it makes things that much more interesting for the yeah. running game, which was already dominant last season. Uh, how has Aaron looked early on, and how has the running game looked early on? Yeah, you guys have probably seen, people in El Paso have probably seen Aaron Jones up closer than I have. Uh, we did have him on a Zoom call once or twice maybe, and he's, of course, as usual, outgoing, fun, loving, Self. And that it's, I say that because you mentioned the A.J. Dillon pick. Even in a contract year, here's Aaron Jones, you know, as happy as can be, um, you know, helping the rookie, even though, you know, it may impact his future. Um, and, and he's just the same Aaron Jones that he's been ever since we've gotten to know him. And from a productive standpoint, I mean, look, he's still the number one running back. He's still getting all the first-team work. Um you know, I, I don't know if they will use them as much as they did last year because, quite frankly, they may not have to use them as much as they did last year with the addition of, of, of um, like you said, A.J. Dillon and possibly, you know, Jamal Williams. And don't forget about this kid, Tyler Irvin, that they picked up as a kick returner. They used him in some gadget roles last year out of the backfield as well. But this is still Aaron Jones' focal point of the offense. Him and Devontae Adams are still the guy. I mean, if you think about it, you know, they didn't add a receiver in the draft, and the one they signed in free agency, Devin Funches, opted out because of the COVID. So the focal point of the offense is still going to start with Aaron Jones and Devontae Adams, and, and, and that won't change. I can tell you that the, the, the impact that Aaron Jones has had here, everybody's seen it, you know, on the field, but his personality, 
is infectious as well. There's a play in practice today where uh, Jamal Williams actually broke free and beat the defensive back around the corner, and he waved. He did the, the, the Aaron Jones wave at the defender. Remember when Jones did that to Byron Jones in Dallas and how, mm-hmm. how cool that was? I mean, even Jamal Williams is trying to be like Aaron Jones, waving at defenders as he blows by him. Love that. That's a great storyline. And, and obviously this, this camp is so unique because not just the running game, but uh, adding Jordan Love to the mix with uh, Aaron Rodgers. And I know how that was initially received. How has yeah. Love been able to fit in a little bit, uh, especially uh, you know, getting a chance to work uh, with, with Aaron? Yeah, I mean, the, the visuals of, the, um, of, of it are good. I mean, they interact on the field. Well, obviously we're not in the meeting rooms, but uh, they're they're cheer for one another. Um, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be any issue there. Uh, Jordan Love's got a lot on his plate right now. I mean, it's tough enough to be a rookie quarterback, but to be a rookie quarterback with no off-season program and no preseason games to work with, I mean, by now they would have played. I think this would have been the second. No, I'm sorry. The they would have already had two preseason games, and they would be preparing their third preseason game uh, this Saturday at the Giants, obviously. So he's got none of that to, to learn from. So every practice, and they've only had nine of them so far, you know, every practice he's doing something new. Um, and and it, it's just, you know, Matt LaFleur said it recently, is he's, he's just got to realize that at some point you just have to cut it loose and trust your instincts. But there's a good chance that might not happen this year, and, and that's okay because, you know, obviously he wasn't drafted to play now. Um, probably not even drafted to play next season. And I should point out that Tim Boyle, the backup quarterback last year, has been absolutely fantastic. Um, the best football I've seen him play. Uh, so they should be fine, you know, in terms of the backup quarterback position. It really is interesting with the offense uh, identical, with the exception of the, the new addition, uh, and and not just uh, you know the rookie running back, but also uh, Josiah uh, Deguara. How has he yeah. looked um, at tight end? Yeah, the whole tight end position, Steve, has been kind of revamped in the sense that it was so Jimmy Graham centric in the past, and they parted ways with Graham. You know, probably a year too late to be honest with you. I thought after the first year, they probably should have realized he was past his prime, but they've, they've really had to revamp it. And it's such a different look with Jay Sternberger, um, you know, the, their third-round pick last year, who, who people down there should be familiar with from, uh, you know, his Texas A&M uh, background. Um, so he's going to be a big part of the offense. Jaguara is, is, is such a versatile guy, too, H-back type of player. Uh, and then Robert Tanya is a guy who has flashed in, in brief moments in the past and, you know, so they have three young, unproven, but definitely more athletic, um, more exciting possibilities in terms of versatility in the tight end room. And, and DeGuara was essentially a Matt LaFleur pick. I mean, you know, he, he has a relationship with one of his coaches at the University of Cincinnati. And you could just tell on draft weekend when he and Brian Gutekunst, the general manager, manager were talking, that DeGuara was a Matt LaFleur pick 100%. As far as defense goes, do you pretty much see things where they were last year for the pack? Well, the big change um, is Christian Kirksey at inside linebacker instead of Blake Martinez. And Blake Martinez was the ultra-reliable uh, tackle machine, uh, you know, over 100 tackles every year, never missed a game. But the big plays 
over the middle, you know, were both given up and not made. Not saying that's all on Martinez for sure, uh, but I think they felt like someone was going to pay Martinez big money, and the Giants did, $10 million a year, and they weren't willing to go that high, and they were going to try to find somebody who could maybe provide a little more punch in terms of big playability. And one of the first practices of the training camp, the guy they signed to do that, Christian Kirksey, dropped into coverage and picked off Aaron Rodgers in coverage. So um, the possibility exists that they could get some more big plays up the middle, but the risk is that Kirksey's coming off two uh, injury-shortened seasons. I think he's only played like nine games in the last two years, um, and that was with Cleveland. So they're hoping that he can, A, stay healthy, and B, provide a little bit more of a playmaking uh player from the middle of the defense and otherwise it's basically the same you know the the big question is what happens if somebody tries to run the ball down their throat like the san francisco 49ers did in the nfc championship game 42 times to the tune of 285 yards they put all their money steve as you know into uh pass rush with signing zadarius smith and and preston smith uh last offseason and what did the 49ers do they decided not to throw the ball and they they offset the aggressive uh, pass rush that the Packers had so you know, we gotta, we've got to see if they can stop the run this year. They did it at times last year, but when it mattered, they, they got run over. Rob Domofsky covers the Packers for ESPN.com, joins us on Sports Talk as we continue. Do you see any possibility where they bring in Des Bryant for a tryout like Baltimore last week? You know, I thought they would draft a receiver high in the draft. They didn't. Um, they seem perfectly content with the group that they have. Um, obviously, Devontae Adams is the clear number one. Uh, they like Alan Lazard and what he did last year. Um, they're, they're, they've been touting the return of Equinemius St. Brown, a six-round pick out of Notre Dame two years ago who missed all of last season after ankle surgery. And they still have hopes that Mark Resvaldez-Scantling can be the big play guy that he was early in the year before he faded. So I guess my answer would be I don't see it happening. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of fans that wanted them to sign or still do want them to sign Antonio Brown, um, a Josh Gordon, a Des Bryant, and, and it just doesn't seem like that's their M.O. All right. Rob, terrific stuff from you as always. It's great to have you back on the show. We'll look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat, and thanks so much for giving us the lowdown out there from Packers camp. Yeah, thanks, Steve, and uh, best to all the people down in El Paso in that area. You bet. We'll talk to you again real soon. He's Rob Domofsky, right. folks. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Domofsky. Check out his work at ESPN.com. Charlie One's back with traffic. We're coming back with plenty more sports talk right here. 600 ESPN El Paso.